there and welcome back to this Human Life Podcast. My name is Melissa Sanova and I find myself reading the last little section of the book, the last little section of uh, Chapter 7. There'll be one more episode in this format and then we're on to the next thing. I cannot believe it. That's the, that's a seven month long project that we've been working on where this, this section of the podcast, this human life has been a bit of an experiment of a hybrid audiobook slash podcast where I have been progressively reading through my book, This Human and yeah, telling stories, diving deeper into the content and hopefully bringing the content to life a little bit for those of you who are interested in human-centered design or have happened to have the book. And yeah, it is not essential that you do have the book or had the book all the way through. But if you do want to check it out, you can go to uh, thishuman.com and see all the other cool free stuff that's there and also follow the links and there's a private community I've set up for people who are interested in human-centered design and this way of practicing human-centered design so you're welcome there as well um okay so let's get stuck into it this is the final installment of chapter seven and we start by talking about constraints and um I, uh, there's a couple of areas in design which I feel designers misunderstand sometimes and one of those areas is critique and we've spent a good time on critique and the other area is constraints where you know we often see them as perhaps a, a limiting thing and that that is bad <laughs> that is you know not really allowing us to do the best work or or whatever your perspective might be I personally love constraints and perhaps that could be because of the the context within which I learned design, which was the manufacturing sector, the automotive engineering sector. And, you know, I just found that in scenarios where you have the most constraints, you have also have the opportunity for the most creativity. So I bring them on, I say. So we start on page 195 and there's a a little exercise that we're kicking off with, exercise 7.5, which is all about accepting constraints. Here we go. As you bring your design into reality, you will be forced to deal with limitations and constraints. These may be in the form of opinion or legislation, or even nature herself. A great designer accepts these constraints with grace, not resistance. This doesn't mean you capitulate and degrade the integrity of your design in accordance with the constraint. It means you see it as an interesting design challenge and find another way around the problem. This takes resilience and commitment. The longer you keep going, the closer you get to making an impact. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes constraints can seem negative at first and become miracles in the end. They provide you from going down pathways that end up in disaster. Always be grateful for a constraint you know about. It's the ones you don't know about that can bite you. Prototyping is actually a risk mitigation strategy. The more constraints you uncover in your process of design, the more you know about what's going to make your design a success and your impact worthwhile. One of the one of the things that I often talk about when we are explaining why the design process looks the way that it does with its you know divergent and 
convergent modes of thinking and and doing is and in particular when I'm referring to the prototyping that you know happens as you're stress testing a concept with the people who ultimately going to be living with the (laughs) with the change you're bringing into the world I often talk about this as a risk mitigation strategy there is a myth that uh, design is more expensive that it takes more time and I always talk about the opportunities that are afforded by taking a design approach to solving complex challenges or bringing services and products into the world because when we don't go through the prototyping phase when we're not actually testing the validity and the robustness of the design decisions and the design actions that we've taken with the people who will be either living with the solution or delivering the solution. What we're actually doing there is where we're mitigating the risk. We're learning constantly about what we got right and what we didn't get right. And it's much better and much cheaper and much quicker to do that in the design phase when you're validating your design than post-implementation phase, which unfortunately too often is the case. So when, you know, even when I've been on the other side of the fence, as opposed to being on the agency side, but on the client side, and I have seen a, a really well thought out prototyping phase, I actually feel comfortable. I feel more and more comfortable. It's certainly not a waste of time. So I invite you to think about constraints as, you know, things that are actually there to make the design more relevant and stronger and more likely to achieve its outcome than things that are holding you back. And a little caveat there as well, before we go on to the the steps in this exercise, some constraints do need to be challenged. So I'm not saying that every constraint is a good one (laughs) or a helpful one or one that ought to be there. Um, Sometimes we're constrained by meaningless, um, illogical legacy rules and regulations and It is up to the designer to stress test and challenge constraints. But once we've done that and we realize that they're there to stay and whether we agree with it or not, it is important to be able to work with them. And as I said in sort of the first part of this episode, constraints are really great at driving creativity and creative problem solving. So invite them in, I say. Tip, constraints are your friend. Working with them can be creative and fun as long as you treat them that way. (laughs) All right, step one, see the constraint as a need. Try to understand the underlying driver for the constraint. Why does this constraint exist? What is driving its necessity? And we've got some examples as well on this page. So underneath step one, constraint might be the service cannot rely on us being able to give advice to the customer. And the insight might be Financial advice requires a different accreditation and your client's organization doesn't have it. So that's actually leaning on a real example in in, in some projects that Huddle did, actually. All right, step two, frame as how might we? Once you know why the constraint exists, frame it as a how might we question to bring a sense of possibility and generative thinking to tackling it. How might we? How might we provide clarity to customers about providing them with financial advice? And step three, use generative thinking. Use the same generative techniques to come up with ways of addressing the constraints. Design is iterative and recursive. 
Just because you are in delivery doesn't mean the creative thinking time is over. So some ideas might be make information available to the customer that they can navigate themselves, partner with accredited financial advisors, become accredited to give advice. There's always a way through, I find. And if you have that, if you have that perspective that there's always a way through, no matter what the constraint is, no matter how immovable it seems, no matter how entrenched in the system, in the legacy, in the incumbent leadership, whatever it might be, in the law, everything, everything, everything changes eventually. So, um, you know, I just, I really believe that. And so nothing um, ought not to be questioned respectfully. All right. Page 196. Being pragmatic. Pragmatism means dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. Pragmatism in design is a tricky topic. Some people believe too much pragmatism can stifle creativity while others believe not enough of it can result in designs that are out of touch with reality. From a design and creativity perspective, reality is something created and designed deliberately and meaningfully. By definition, it can never be out of touch. However, a designed reality can be completely out of touch with the context within which it needs to operate. This is where pragmatism comes in. Knowing when to be pragmatic and when to dream is a dance that all designers learn as they become more experienced. There is no clear-cut rule. Just because you're in delivery mode, it doesn't mean you need to turn off the dream machine. Just because you're in concept mode, it doesn't mean you throw your pragmatism out the window. It takes time to understand when it needs to be dialed up and dialed down. Much like we do with um, ambiguity, right? Um, that's a little anecdote that's not in the book just in case you're reading along the most important point is that you need it pragmatism is something to cultivate and grow it helps you land your work in context so it can have impact obviously everything that I've chosen to write about um, in the book is something that I feel passionate about because I've written about it but pragmatism in particular is something that's so incredibly useful <laughs> when you're in this phase of design when you're actually coming you you know bringing your your work into land in the context within which it needs to operate and you know there are many designers that I've worked with that would much prefer to stay in the conceptual world to continue you know diving deeper into insight and understanding why things are the way they are staying in idea generation and constantly coming up with new ways to address the challenges in front of them and, and not really knowing when to, to converge. And um, I understand all of that and have been there myself. But if the, and I guess this is me expressing my bias in terms of the, the role that I believe design plays in the world and that is that it, it, it has its most impact in and being of the world. And this is where pragma, pragmatism is just so critical to be able to hone your skills as a designer, to be equally creative and divergent and, and you know, ability to hold ambiguity, um, but also to be able to work with answers, to be able to work with the solution. And, you know, a lot of this chapter, um, which is called Delivery, is about that. It's about building the skills within yourself to be able to be that type of designer. All right, speaking business. 
it would be a luxury to design in a vacuum. Imagine being able to create the ultimate solution without the worldly constraints of time and money. But this is not meaningful design. Meaningful design requires your creation to have meaning for everyone involved. The creators, the people who commission the work, those who receive the benefits of the work, and the people you are ultimately designing with and for. Meaningful design not only requires you to be a good practitioner of human-centered design, you also have to understand the practicalities of business, operating a service, maintaining a service and operation, and supporting it and its users, for example. Pragmatism and creativity go hand in hand during delivery. Both need to be developed to create mastery in the field. Designers who care about the practicalities of what it will take to bring their creation into reality are more likely to create designs that have impact. There are three dimensions to consider as you bring your design into reality. Desirability, feasibility, viability. There are many wonderful ideas that don't make it because there is no way to operate them or they are not sustainable over the long term because operating costs are too high. Now, those of you who are familiar with design thinking, it would have picked up on the desirability, feasibility, viability frames, often spoken of in the context of how to how to design think, <laughs> in that we're constantly um, designing for the tension um, that's created by considering those three dimensions. I'm going to go into that now. I'm obviously talking about it through the lens of delivery, so the things that we've got to make sure that we maintain. Um, Uh, in balance as we deliver. So desirability. We have talked about desirability in previous chapters, so I will just remind you of one other aspect here. This dimension is about everyone in your design context, not just the end users. The people who are delivering the service are people too. Desirability is not just about whether the service or product is desirable for the end user. It is also concerned with enabling the people who are delivering the service to have a pleasant experience. Remember, what's inside manifests outside. If the people who are delivering the service are happy and having a good time, then that energy will help the experience of the service have a better chance of being great. Feasibility. Sometimes your best ideas can't be delivered. Perhaps the technology doesn't exist yet or the right legislation isn't in place. You might be able to design around these constraints, but you need to know what is feasible for your client. We worked with a client who was an insurance provider. There were many opportunities to improve the customer experience by providing them with financial advice to aid their decision making. This company did not have the appropriate licenses to be able to provide this kind of advice. Designing a service that relies heavily on the company advising the customer would provide a great experience for the customer, but would not be feasible for the organisation. Having a great design that meets customer expectations but can't be delivered isn't great design. It is irresponsible design. Viability. Businesses use money as a mechanism for the exchange of value between customers and themselves. When this is present, so is an interest in whether the money invested in the design and delivery of the service will be returned. Return on investment. Most organisations have to choose where to invest their money. If your design takes too long or costs too much to deliver, it won't be a viable proposition. Most government agencies provide services for free, but viability is still cost-based. Will they be able to deliver the services or strategies you've designed within the budget they have allocated for this activity? 
Sometimes you won't have enough information to determine if your design is viable for your client, although understanding this dimension will inform the way you engage with them. During iteration and refinement, they can provide you with guidance to ensure that your design is viable. Pragmatism. Keeping these three dimensions in mind as you create your design ensures you keep one foot in business reality or any reality, the context, the reality of the context in which you're designing. So on that page, which is page 198, I've got the famous Venn diagram, which is the desirable, sorry, the desirability, feasibility, uh, viability. And I've just put my little spin on it as well, where the design the, the Venn diagram that I spoke about earlier on, which is the combination of desirable, useful and usable in the way that I apply this framework, sits inside of the desirability frame. Um, and it is much easier for you to understand what I just said if you could have the picture in front of you. So you can, you can go get the book or you can go to the website and download the um, worksheets, which are free, free. All right, here we go. We're up to page 199, exercise 7.6. There will be people who are fearful of the reality you are creating. Do not let their fear infect you. Feel the fear, then be fearless. Okay, so there's a little bit of an explanation beneath each of those um, statements. There will be people who are fearful of the reality you are creating. They may need to do more work than they currently do or work in a different way or operate with more accountability. Your design might expose their mistake or failures. Hopefully these scenarios are uncovered and dealt with early in the design process, but sometimes you are faced with difficult situations later in the process. Do not let their fear infect you. Do not allow it to slow your progress in this important work. It is okay to feel your own fear. In fact, it is critical to acknowledge the feeling and move forward despite it. The inability of people to move beyond their fear prevents the implementation of great work. Feel the fear, then be fearless. I use the word fearless instead of courage for a reason. Fear can stop progress. So often when I'm speaking to, you know, human-centered design classes or I'm giving you know talks or I'm sitting on a panel or whatever inevitably at some point the topic of vulnerability and courage come up because basically because of this if you are doing impactful work you're going to make people feel uncomfortable because you're changing their reality you're changing the status quo and the status quo for a lot of people is comfort and safety and predictability and you're bringing unrest to that so the first, the very first thing that we ought to do is to connect with that feeling and to know that that's what we're doing and to not make the other person feel wrong, like the person that's giving you resistance in the process, make them wrong for feeling afraid of what this means. But also it, it's really, really important that you become almost expert at being able to identify when you're reaching your comfort zones and, you know, stepping beyond it where you start being fearful of what this work might bring and it's also really important to be able to distinguish between your fear your fear which can be real but also you taking on the fear of other people so it might be the fear of the organization that you're feeling and having this self-awareness and being able to process that emotion so that you can continue to show up and do amazing work is absolutely critical in delivery 
the pathway to accessing your best work is through your passion and desire. And this is why I keep talking about this stuff, because um, that's the energy that gets you through these sorts of sticky, scary, anxiety-inducing, fearful moments. (laughs) All right, to sum up. The world needs people who can create products and services that are kind to our planet, its people, and all the other living creatures. The more you expand your knowledge beyond your practice, the more influence you'll have in the world. Your designs need to be contextual, complete, robust, resolved, and stand the test of time. And for these designs to make it in the real world, you will need determination, persistence, and resilience. You need to know how to deliver strongly, with quality, and often. There are an increasing number of you out there who are passionate about doing this work. I am hopeful that your work will have amazing and meaningful impacts so the world is a better place for you having existed. (laughs) All right, that brings us to the end of this project. That is so amazing. It's interesting how we make our voice like this when we're celebrating. Um, There is one little section that I'm going to read on its own and I haven't decided whether or not I'm going to reveal the secret framework that has helped me organize my thinking for this human. So stay tuned for the next episode to find that out. But as always, so much gratitude to you for allocating 20 minutes or so of your life to listen to me ramble on about this stuff. And hopefully you're finding my ramblings supportive and nourishing for you and informative for your practice. Um, If you want to explore all the things that are in the This Human universe, you can head over to thishuman.com and follow the links to the community and come and join us over there. It's hosted on Mighty Networks. And if you want to explore working with me one-on-one or you want to get me into talk in your organization or whatever, you can check that out at melissanova.com. All right. Thank you. And I'll be with you next week. Take care. Bye.